how many of you were in here when we started the Paul series? Y'all have been faithful. Do you feel like you've gotten to know him? You feel like he's not just the name in the Bible, but, but someone who you've, you've kind of uh, grown accustomed to a little bit or gotten to, to feel for. I've been dreading this class. I told my little sister yesterday, Holly, I said, I'm dreading tomorrow. She said, why? I said, I've got to preach a funeral. She said, oh, really? You hate those? I said, I know. He said, she said, who? I said, Paul. <laughs> and it sounds kind of morbid, but I sort of feel like I'm... I thought, you know, if I had more time, I would have divided off and done Second Timothy today, and then next Sunday we just would have gone ahead and had a funeral for Paul, because we know enough to really preach his eulogy well. And um, um, but today we look at his last days and and it's something that I look at with a a kind of a sad joy. Um, uh, I'm there is it it really has all of the elements of of a funeral to it to me. I awoke Thursday morning. I was in um, there it is. I awoke Thursday morning in Miami and it was a beautiful morning and, and it's a beautiful city if you've ever been there and. I was set to speak at about 10.30, I think, central time, uh, 11.30, Miami time. And I had a little extra time on my hands. I'd, I'd uh, basically uh, uh, done everything I needed to do. And so I went downstairs to the convention a little bit early. And I stood outside where I saw a group of six or seven friends. And this is uh, people from all around the country that I don't see very often. And they were standing there talking. So I went over and said hi to them and, and merged into their group and listened to the conversation. And there was one woman who uh, uh, I know so-so. I don't know her extremely well, but, but she's normally a lot more uh, verbose. She's a lot more talkative. And she was being kind of quiet. And I remembered in the back of my brain that, that our, our law firm had sent flowers because her mother, I think it was her mother, yeah, I was sure it was her mother, as I sat there and thought, had recently passed away. And so I said to her, uh, uh, I, as, as one conversation kind of steered that way, and she and I were uh, at this end of the group of, of six or so, I said, Linda, I haven't had a chance to tell you I'm sorry about your loss. And I didn't want to say your mom, because I thought it was her mom, but I wasn't sure it was her mom. You know, it's one of those things where you, you don't want to say something that would be, like, really wrong, you know. Because um, you could tell she was kind of burdened. She was just not feeling real good about the world at that moment. And she teared up, and she said, thank you so much. She said the hardest part of losing mom was how abrupt it was. You know, it's not the kind of thing we anticipated. It was just... I hear there's a car wreck, and she's dead. And mom was in the best of health. And I, I saw the tears in her eyes, and I said, well, I, I, I'm so, so sorry. You know, I'm blessed to have my mother, and my mother's mother still alive. But I've lost my father, and, and I know it hurts. And she, um, she says, yeah, it's just you wish there was something you could say. I, I want to call her on the phone. And just have one last conversation. She said, by the time I got there, she was unconscious. And she never regained consciousness and died. And it reminded me of something I'd heard on NPR radio years ago. But it's never left me. 
the NPR radio reporter said that a recent poll had been taken of doctors and nurses asking them, how would you like to die? And a clear majority of them said, by cancer, which I was stunned to hear. I mean, I, I live by the old joke of um, turn grandmother's hearing aid off for this one. Um, it's off. <laughs> I live by the old joke when I die, um, I, I want to go peacefully in my sleep like my grandmother, instead of like the four people yelling, screaming, and shouting, wake up, who were in the car with her. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was stunned that most people, doctors and nurses, chose cancer. The reason they gave was if you have cancer the doctors are able to give you a reasonable timeline of how long you're going to live. And so you have time to get your house in order. You have time to say what you need to say to whoever you need to say it. And you have time for them to speak to you. And ultimately, while the death would be painful, they've got medicines that alleviate the pain. And so the doctors preferred going that way as opposed to being in a car accident where there is absolutely no warning and no chance to say anything. And I was thinking about that Thursday and I thought I'm going to change the introduction to my lesson because I want to start my lesson out this way. Paul writes Second Timothy at a time where Paul knows his end is near. And so he's writing Second Timothy uh, uh, with it being a reflection in a way. You know, I just reflect on Paul. We know that Christ was born most likely before Paul a couple of years, but Paul was born shortly after Jesus. We think Jesus was probably born around 2 or so B.C. We don't know precisely. But uh, we followed Paul through Tarsus and, and we followed him through Jerusalem and his education and his growing up and, and his zeal and all of his fervor as he persecuted the church and then he finally reaches a point where Jesus just knocks him flat on the road to Damascus and he comes to faith and he's converted. That's probably around 33 AD or so. We followed Paul as he went on his first mission trip and went into modern Turkey. We followed him on a second mission trip that extended all the way into Greece and Macedonia and Corinth. We followed him on a third mission trip that went through all of his territories as he tried to reinforce, spent extra time in Ephesus as he'd promised to do. We followed him back to Jerusalem where he was arrested and he went to Rome and he, and Acts ended with him appealing his, his, uh, uh, um, indictment to Caesar. The Caesar at the time was Nero. We believe, based upon Paul's writings that we've been covering lately, that Paul was released and, and church history records his release from that prison. What he did after that, we don't know precisely, but if he was arrested somewhere in 57 to 62, he spent that time doing the appeal, then after that somewhere, if we throw a map up, based on Paul's writings, we're able to deduce, perhaps, Clement says, he went as far as the west, which would be uh, Spain. 
Um, so perhaps he went to Spain. We do know he went to Crete because he left Titus there. And we talked about that last week. He also referenced that he'd be going to what's now Yugoslavia, uh, the, the western coast of, of the Greek peninsula. So we know he went there. But ultimately he winds up back in Rome somewhere around 65, 66, 67 A.D., and that's where we find Paul as he's writing 2 Timothy. Now, things had changed in Rome since Paul had been there four years earlier. The big change happened in 64. In 64 AD, Paul uh, uh, is not there at the time, we don't think, but Rome burns. And when we say Rome burns, it really burns. It, it burns badly. We can get a good description of it from a Roman historian who wrote maybe 40 years later named Tacitus. And Tacitus writes about uh, the burn and recognizing we're somewhat limited on time. Let's see what we have a moment to, to look at. Um, Tacitus says, AWC, he says, um, there followed a disaster whether due to chance or to the malice of the sovereign is uncertain. For each version has its sponsors. The sovereign was Nero. There were rumors that Nero had caused the fire in Rome. It probably didn't help things that the area that got burned was the, the slums, the tenements actually a lot of areas, but among them were those areas and that they just happened to be where Nero needed to build his brand new palace. And so he walked in and said, gee, I'm so sorry you all have been burned out. Now move, I've got to clear this ground and build my palace. So a lot of folks said that Nero himself had done it. Uh, Tacitus continues, he says, but graver and more terrible than any other which has befallen this city by the ravages of fire. And then he starts detailing all the different areas that were burned out. As he continues, he says, Nero, who at the time was staying in Antium, did not return to the capital until the fire was nearing the house by which he'd connected the Palatine with the gardens of Mycenaeus. That doesn't mean anything to us, but it did to them way back then. It proved impossible to stop it from engulfing both the Palatine and the house and all their surroundings goes on and on. Now, he tried to help those who were, were having trouble, yet his measures, popular as their character might be, failed of their effect. For when the report had spread that at the very moment when Rome was aflame, he, Nero, had mounted his private stage and typifying the ills of the present by the calamities of the past, had sung the destruction of Troy. In other words, he had, Nero was more interested in the arts. He thought he was a phenomenal actor. He didn't really give a rip about governing and being a general and things like that. It was not a great pinnacle in Rome's history. You know, he kills his mom. He kills his wife. He, you know, he's, he's just not a really good lad. So Nero mounts his personal stage that he had built so that he could put on for the people displays of his incredible acting ability and singing ability. And while Rome is burning, he starts singing about the destruction of Troy. That's really not politically astute. 
By the way, they didn't have violins back then. But this is the passage that gave birth to the saying, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Okay? It's this passage. He wasn't fiddling, though. He was singing. Now, Nero gets into a spot of trouble because people are convinced he didn't take it seriously. He probably started it. He wanted to build his own big palace, and there was a lot of uproar. So, we continue reading what Tacitus says. Neither human help nor imperial munificence, in other words, food stamps, giving away stuff, nor all the modes of placating heaven, sacrificing everything he tried, could stifle scandal or dispel the belief that the fire had taken place by order. In other words, the rumors were still rampant that Nero started the fire. Therefore, to scotch the rumor... This must be a British translator. In Texas, we'd say to stomp out the rumor. But they scotched the rumor. To scotch the rumor, Nero substituted his culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty. A class of men loathed for their vices, whom the crowd styled Christians. By the way, if you weren't in church history, the vices that we were loathed for back then included cannibalism because we had secret meetings where we ate the body and the blood of Christ. So that was interpreted to mean we must be cannibals by those who didn't understand the Lord's Supper. Christus, the founder of the name, Christians, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator, procurator Pontius Pilate. And the pernicious superstition was checked for a moment, only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in the capital itself, where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and find a vogue. First, the confessed members of the sect were arrested. Next, on their disclosures... Vast numbers were convicted, not so much on the count of arson as for hatred of the human race, and derision accompanied therein. They were covered with wild beast skins and torn to death by dogs, or they were fastened on crosses, and when daylight failed, were burned to serve as lamps by night. Nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle. And gave an exhibition in his circus, mixing with the crowd in the habit of a charioteer, are mounted on his car. Um, it's hence God's working. In spite of a guilt which had earned the most exemplary punishment, there arose a sentiment of pity due to the impression that they were being sacrificed, Christians, not for the welfare of the state, but to the ferocity, ferocity of a single man. Um, this is not a Christian writing, obviously. I love to show that passage also to friends who say, ah, there was no real historical Jesus. This man's history is, is pretty good. So Rome burns in 64 to put the blame off of himself. Nero blames the Christians and say they did it. What would you expect from a bunch of cannibals? 
who think that they are God's exclusive territory. And if you don't follow them in their way, you're going to hell. They won't sacrifice with us. They won't participate in the public games. These are a bunch of kooks who just might do such a thing. So Nero would explain. And as a result, we find Paul at this point in time again in Rome and he's under arrest and he's writing to Timothy. And the world is very different than when it was before. You might recall before, uh, I mentioned that Paul's arrest came at a time when Seneca was the counselor of Nero. Seneca was the brother of Gallius, who we studied earlier. Remember the guy in Greece that let Paul off and said, this is just internal fusses about Jews. This isn't a crime against Rome. Seneca would have been in place to let Paul off and to counsel Nero or to hear, actually, the first arrest of Paul, the first time in Rome. But this time Seneca has been sent off by Nero, too. And Seneca is uh, uh, not a counselor. He's not available. So Paul's there. And if you read 2 Timothy, in light of this, there are some things that jump out at you. You read 2 Timothy thinking Paul's writing this knowing his life is ended. Paul's writing this knowing his time and days are numbered. And then you start seeing these words that just have extra oomph to them as Paul writes about the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. He's, a, he's serving a death penalty. He's going to be martyred for his faith. But he knows there's a promise of life that's in Christ Jesus. He contrasts in this the life and immortality, immortality, never dying, alive for eternity, that Christ brought to us, he contrasts that to the death that Christ had abolished. Paul may be going to meet a physical death on earth, but Paul readily contrasts that to the life and immortality he has in Jesus. Paul writes, if we've died with him, we will live with him. Paul writes, I know whom I have believed And I am convinced that he's able to guard until that day what's been entrusted to me or you could equally translate it, what what I've entrusted to him. It flows both ways. Paul makes multiple references to his ancestors. And to, to, to ancestors of Timothy, his mother, his grandmother. And there's something about when you're facing your death, you do. You sit back and you start thinking about the life chain before you. Paul finishes the letter saying, The time of my departure's come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. He says, The Lord will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. So in a real sense, we, Paul doesn't write a will and testament, but, but he does write a letter that he knows are perhaps his last words to Timothy. And so Timothy's reading this, and Paul writes as an apostle to Timothy, my beloved child, my son. That's the affinity and the affection. So he sits there knowing his days are numbered, and Paul works out this letter. And so when we, when we look at this, I've pulled out 
a few slides that illustrate those things to me that were so important that Paul really wanted Timothy to hold on to. It's the kind of thing, I had a friend who, who um, was diagnosed with cancer at the age of 22. And he, um, he was a preacher. He, he, was, he, he may have been 23. Um, he was two years older than me, and I don't remember. But I was touched because he had already a child who was an infant. And my friend preached his own funeral. Videotape had just really come to where you could do it. And, and he videotaped his own funeral more than any other reason because he wanted his child to grow up and know his daddy's faith and voice. And he had things he wanted that child to hear from his own lips. Paul has reached a point where he's writing to Timothy and he knows this, I may not see him again, I hope to. At the end of the letter he says, Timothy, hurry, come. Try to get here before winter. Um, But there's no guarantee. So what does he say? He says, first, I want you to Fan into flame the gift of God that's in you. Every one of us have that. Every one of us who are believers in Jesus Christ have the gift of God within us. And just like you take billows and you get those embers and you burst them into flames, Paul says, work it. Work it. Feed it. Nurture it. Nourish it. God's put something special in you. Focus on that. David's priority slides, the one, two, three, four, five. He put yourself on there. He put God on there. He put family, actually broke it apart, spouse, kids, remember that? In all of those areas, God's got something inside of us that we're to be fanning into flames. Paul says, Timothy, God didn't give you a spirit of fear. Some translate it timidity. God gave you a spirit of power, of love and self-control. And that's what you need to embrace. Live in that. Don't be ashamed, he says. Don't be ashamed of me. I'm arrested. I'm going to die as a, oh, he's one of those Christians who burned Rome. No, don't be ashamed of me and don't ever be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed I know whom I've believed. Here's the context in which that verse comes. And I'm persuaded he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him against that day. You don't need to be ashamed of me. And you don't need to be ashamed of the Lord. This is not, gee, where did God go while all the Christians were being burned in Nero's gardens? No. Gee, where was God when the hurricane, you know... No. Gee, where was God when the 22-year-old got cancer? No. When Linda's mother was in a fatal car accident? No. Don't ever be ashamed of God. Don't ever say, I I don't know that God... God holds it in His hand. And even though we're so caught up in this life, this life seems like everything. It's not. And God is outside of space and time. 
He's in eternity as well as in us. And God will take us and remove us from this fallen world and redeem us for eternity. That's the promise. And Paul's not hoping it's so. Paul's not willing to roll the dice because he has no choice. Paul says, I know. It knocked Paul to the ground on the road to Damascus. He never lost hold of it. Paul knew and was convinced that God would not let him go or anyone else. There's no reason to ever be ashamed of God or his gospel. So instead, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Treat it as a treasure. Treat it as worthy of, 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 of your time and energy and, and protection. Paul says, what you have heard from me, remember all that stuff Paul did? All that slide with the life of Paul? Timothy was along for so much of that. Paul says, what you have heard from me, Timothy, I want you to entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach others. That's the giving chain. That's where Paul says, you've heard it from me. You, Timothy, find the faithful men and pass it on. And pass it on. And pass it on. And pass it on. Which is what we have today. It's the Holy Spirit through people. Paul, Timothy, and others that put together not only um, the collection of Paul's letters that we have in Scripture, but all of Scripture. So that we will be able to teach. This is Paul's legacy. Paul says to Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as someone who's an approved worker with no need to be ashamed who rightly handles the word of truth. Paul goes a step further and says, choose your path wisely. See, some people have taken a path of just babbling irreverently. Just their tongue, with no regard to God. He says, you don't choose that. You choose the path of holiness. That other path, it just is like gangrene. It just starts here and just starts eating away at your body. It doesn't lead to a good place. These are evil desires of youth, he says. Put them away. Get away from them. Instead of that, you pursue righteousness. You pursue faith. You pursue love. You pursue peace. He says, these are the things. The Lord's servant, he says, needs to be kind to the people that they like. Oh, no. I misread that. Kind to everyone. Kind to everyone. Able to teach. Patiently enduring evil. The man writing this knows about people being burned on crosses to light Nero's gardens. Patiently enduring evil. Correcting his opponents with body slams. Or gentleness. He says, this is what Christianity is about. This is, 
And it's one thing to say God saved us. That's phenomenal. That's incredible. That's beyond comprehension almost. But God doesn't just save us. God wants to work in our hearts and in our lives right now. Right now. Right now. That's the power of God. Some people, he says, they have the appearance of godliness, but they're missing the real power. It's the Wizard of Oz. Oh, it looks, oh, the great and wonderful Oz, when it's just some goofball behind the curtain. People who think that, I'm a Christian, when the time is right and on Sunday mornings, but who live a life of sin, are denying the very power of God. Because the power of God is to change us. God's got power to change us from being rotten, dirty sinners into holy vessels used for His good purposes. And heaven forbid we merely wear the Christian label. You want to know some of the most miserable people in the world are Christians who are supposed to have joy because they're too Christian to, to be having the fun the world offers, but they're too worldly to be having the joy that Christianity offers. And so they just sit in the fence and are miserable. Paul says, no, don't... Embrace the form of godliness and deny the power. The power is to take you in whatever place you are in life and to give you indescribable joy as God completes the good work He's already started in us. That's the power. That's what we need to embrace. God, may Your power work in my life and change who I am. And you want to know how he can do it? You want some help? Hey, would you like a, a, a little booklet that might be profitable to help train? To help teach? To help rebuke? To help uh, uh, make us better in righteousness? Well, presto. Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Some translations say inspired by God, but, but the Greek there, theopneumo, it literally means God has breathed it out. And it's really good for teaching. It's really good for reproof. It's really good for correcting. It's really good for training in righteousness. And so Paul says, recognizing I'm coming to a close here, my last words to you, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God. You preach the word. You preach the word. And you be ready in season, out of season. You rebuke. You reprove. You exhort. Do it with complete patience and teaching. And Paul says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Timothy, do your best to come to me soon. Bring Mark. He's useful. Bring my cloak. Bring my scrolls, especially the parchments, and try to get here by winter. I don't think I'm going to be around much more. The Lord be with your spirit. Now, we don't know... Scripture does not tell us what happened to Paul. We have to turn to history books for that. But we have history books. There's a book called The Acts of Paul. It was written, oh, 
less than 100 years after he died by an elder in the church over in Asia Minor who tried to pass it off as being authentic. Uh, and he was doing it as a tribute to Paul because of his love and respect for Paul. But when it was uh, found out that it wasn't as authentic as he wanted to pretend it was and that he'd actually written it, he got uh, defrocked from his eldership. But anyway, um, scholars are quick to say that because he was trying to pass it off as authentic, the history in it's pretty good in some regards. Some of the theology you can tell probably isn't all that hot. But it's interesting because it does talk about Paul's death. It's um, talking in reference to Nero. It's talking about all that Nero had said and done. And, and it says that Paul gets brought out in front of Nero. And they, Nero could tell by the way all the other Christians were treating Paul that he must be like a leader or something among them. And so he calls Paul out in that regard and... And uh, Paul gets brought to him, and, and uh, he declares that Paul's going to be beheaded. So Paul stood with his face to the east. That's where the Lord comes from. And lifted up his hands unto heaven and prayed a long time. And in his prayer, he conversed in the Hebrew tongue with the fathers. And then stretched forth his neck without speaking. And the executioner beheads him. Um, Paul died the way, I won't say the way he wanted to, but he died with words of praise on his lips and a heart confident that God was on the other side. This was the Paul who'd written the Philippians earlier and said, for me, it's better to die. But I live because it's more important for you right now. So as Paul had reached that point, Paul, the time of my departure has come, he said to Timothy. You know, statistically, the odds are every one of us in here is going to die at some point. There will come a point where every one of us the time of our departure will come. It's going to happen. I want to tell you, I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he's able to keep that which I've committed to him. I'm 47. I'll be 48 soon. A young man. God has never forsaken me. I've been through very deep valleys in my life. But God has never forsaken me. I'm a student of history. And I'm a student of his word. And I'm honored to say that he's not only my God, he is my Lord, he is my King, and he is my Father. And I trust him with everything that I have because he is the source of everything that I have. Paul says, I fought the good fight, I finished the race and I've kept the faith. And I put that as a point for home, our last point for home. And let me tell you why. While all of us are going to die, 
And while I pray that all of us die knowing Jesus, there is a time gap, most likely, statistically speaking, between right now and when we're going to die. We could all drop dead in a heartbeat. But if statistics bear out, we've got time left. And during that time, I would urge you to focus on what matters. To fight the good fight. Run that race with the power of God to change who you are. Make that decision. I don't want to be the way I was when I walked into class. I really am going to go 100% whole hog opened up to the power of God to change me. Fight the good fight. Finish the race and keep the faith. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your love, your devotion to us, your commitment to us, your willingness to forgive over and over, your constant tug to bring us home, to bring us closer to your heart. I pray for every person who hears this message that your Holy Spirit will change them transform them, soften their heart, clean out their ears, sharpen their mind, and bring them to faith in you. Through Jesus Christ, amen.